The spirit of the Antichrist is already at work within us. The Bible makes that plain, and in this series that we've been going through, we are noting that if that's the case, it ought to have an impact on how we live our lives and our expectations of what lies ahead. You know, nothing is in the Bible by accident. God's Word contains everything we need for life and godliness. It is precisely what God chose to reveal about Himself to mankind so that we could navigate these waters of life successfully. And so if God's Word says that the spirit of the Antichrist is already at work, and if Jesus said that we ought to watch for the signs of the times. He told the nation of Israel that he kind of rebuked their leaders, actually, when he said, look, you can look at the sky and discern the weather, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. And we don't want to make the same mistake that Israel did. And so even though the rapture is the next great prophetic event to which the world looks forward, and the Bible is very clear that that event is imminent and can happen at any time. There are no signs or prophecies that must be fulfilled to indicate the rapture is coming. And if you're interested in studying more about that, I would encourage you to uh, check out my uh, video, The Imminency of the Rapture, or I've got several others. We have a series, actually a four-disc series uh, for sale on our website called The Rapture Series that deals with one minute after the rapture, one minute before the rapture, the imminency of the rapture, and the top ten signs that we might be living in the last of the last days. So the best we can do in these days is to look at the signs of the times, then see if the stage is being set for certain end times events, such as the unveiling of the Antichrist, or the signing of the peace treaty, or the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments, or the abomination of desolation, or Gog and Magog, or the battle of Armageddon, or the return of Christ triumphant to take his throne in the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, or the millennial reign of Christ. There's a lot of prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled relating to the end times. In fact, one-third of the Bible is prophecy, and one-half one of that has not been fulfilled yet, which means if you do the math, one-sixth of uh, biblical prophecy is yet to be fulfilled. But the rapture, uh, there are no signs where it could happen at any moment. Nevertheless, as we look at the signs of the times, if we see something pointing to events that come after the rapture, uh, setting the stage in, in the sense that these things could be soon, then it follows that the rapture uh, could be very soon. So we're not setting dates here. We're not sensationalizing. We're not trying to uh, do any kind of newspaper exegesis like many people do within uh, the realm of uh, Bible prophecy uh, studies. Uh, what we're saying is that the Bible plainly says the spirit of the Antichrist is already at work. We're going to look at that verse again in a moment. And because that's the case, we need to guard against deception and be prepared for it. So in this series, we've looked at a number of um, spirits uh, that are characteristic of the Antichrist, that constitute the spirit of the Antichrist that is already at work in our present age today. And uh, today, uh, in this continuing series, part 13, we come to the spirit of pride. The spirit of pride. And as we always do to introduce this, because we have new viewers uh, uh, signing up every day and uh, watching these videos, and I certainly understand that not everyone is able or has the interest in sitting down and watching all 12 of the first 12 videos, and so this may be the first one you watch. And that being the case, I always like to lay the foundation, even if briefly. Now, for a more uh, full treatment of, of the biblical basis for this study, I encourage you to go walk back and watch uh, videos one and two uh, in this series. But as I said, uh, the Apostle John tells us in his first epistle uh, that the spirit of the Antichrist, which we have heard is coming, is already in the world. 
So notice Antichrist is capitalized there. That's because the Bible teaches there is a future world leader who will take the helm of a one-world religious, political, and governmental system. He will be working according to the power of Satan, and for seven years he will wreak havoc on the world, seeking to win this cosmic struggle between God and Satan. And he is called the Antichrist. We Again, going back to the earlier videos in the series, we looked at uh, a lot of the biblical teaching about this individual. He's called the beast. He's called the uh, man of sin. He's called the son of perdition. Uh, he's called the little horn. He's called the Antichrist, of course. Uh, the beast of the sea, the first beast, those kinds of things. But this spirit of this future world leader who will arrive on the scene after the rapture, uh, is already at work in the world today. Uh, he elsewhere says that uh, even though the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. And that's how we know it's the last hour. The last days or the last hour in Scripture refers to this present church age, the final age before the consummation of all things when Christ comes back and makes all things new as He takes the throne as promised Him and rules with a rod of iron and perfect peace and justice and righteousness. So many antichrists along the way have come. Now this, of course, was written 2,000 years ago in the late 90s A.D., so not quite 2,000 years ago, but uh, in the roundabout way, 2,000 years ago, 1,900 plus years ago. And if that was true then, uh, then just imagine how in his demonic realm, uh, the realm of the unseen that Paul says is where the real battle is, it's this cosmic struggle between Satan and God that has ensued ever since Satan, Lucifer, was kicked out of heaven. Um, he is now striving to take over this world as his own. And along the way, he has had many antichrists. We've talked about how uh, in, in previous sessions, how Satan has to have a man of the hour ready at a moment's notice because he does not know when the rapture is going to happen, which will start the clock ticking on the final end times events leading up to the consummation of the age when Christ comes back. We, he doesn't know when that's going to happen. So he has to always be on guard and ready since he's not omnipotent or omniscient, um, uh, nor, nor is he uh, you know, all, all powerful or uh, all knowing. He can't be everywhere present at the same time. He is not God. He's limited. Even though he's a spirit being, so he's not confined to time, space, and matter, he cannot see all things at once. He cannot know all things at once. And so that being the case, he is prepared at any time for, so that once the rapture happens, uh, he will indwell, I believe, from Second Thessalonians 2 and Daniel 8, the Antichrist, and uh, begin to work through him to uh, achieve his evil plan on the earth. Uh, so uh, Satan's always watching. That's the reason in the, just recently in these, this series when I talked about the spirit of phenomena and we got into UFOs and UAPs and alien abduction and looked at all of that not from a little green Martian perspective but from an interdimensional demonic perspective, I suggested, and again I can't prove it, it's just my observation, that the reason we have seen such an uptick in this phenomenalistic activity, this paranormal activity from 1947 on is because Satan watched as Israel was rebirthed as a nation and actually became a nation on May 15, 1948 after World War II. And he knew that because he has read the Bible and he knows God's plan, even though he doesn't think God's plan is going to succeed, he thinks he's going to outsmart God. He does know that God's game plan includes a, a national presence of Israel and a temple where Satan is going to reign and rule in the person and work of the Antichrist. And so when Satan saw Israel become a nation... He said, boy, I, 
this is, I've got to get busy here. So I believe he sort of gave marching orders to his demonic realm, one third of the angels that fell with him from heaven. And, and they've been doing all kinds of phenomenalistic, paranormal type things in the 73 years uh, since then. Uh, so uh, many antichrists have come. He's ready at any moment to make one of them the Antichrist with a capital A. Paul would later put it this way, that the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. He's talking here about the man of sin, the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, if you go back and read all of chapter 2. And so this mystery of the future Antichrist is already at work, even though he himself has not been unveiled and won't be until after the rapture. Paul told Timothy that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith. And the nature of that departure will be that they will be giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. We talked about that in recent uh, weeks. So perilous times will come uh, and we need to be prepared. Proverbs 22.3 reminds us that the wise person sees trouble coming and is prepared. Not only that, but again, it's part of the whole counsel of God. I know some of these subjects and topics uh, not, don't, do not resonate with some Christians, and even some Christians ridicule and mock and say, oh, why are you uh, giving the devil so much airtime? And why are you talking about all this end time stuff? Well, I'm talking about it because, again, one-third of the Bible is prophetic. And uh, the Bible doesn't end with the death and resurrection of Christ. It ends with the return of Christ to take the throne and make all things new. God's kingdom will come. We're not living in the kingdom today, but His kingdom will come. And so uh, it's the whole counsel of God. It's exciting. Uh, it gives us reason and hope to get out of bed every morning. Remember, Paul, the Apostle Paul said, If in this life only we have hope, I am, all, I am of all men most pitiable. So we want to study these things, not exclusively. There are a whole lot of other uh, things that we can and should study in the Word of God. I encourage you to check out the Not By Works a podcast where we're talking on Wednesday nights about the doctrine of salvation and what that means, uh, what the, the nature of sin and the Savior and salvation. Uh, I'm also doing a series through the book of Hebrews to talk about how we can uh, trust God in trying times. And so there, the Bible is rich with practical truths. All of it is practical by its very nature because it's God's self-revelation to mankind. But a big part of that is this subject of the future Antichrist and that spirit of his that is already at work. So this series, now in its 13th installment, is going through uh, seven manifestations of the spirit of the Antichrist. We spent a great deal of time on the spirit of pretense, and then we moved on to the spirit of phenomena, where we spent a couple of weeks, and today we come to the spirit of pride. The spirit of pride. Do we see an increase in this notion of pride. Well, first, let's take a look at what the Bible has to say about this future Antichrist and how pride will be one of the primary characteristics of this evil world dictator. Daniel chapter 7, talking about the Antichrist, says, And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. A mouth speaking pompous words. He goes on to describe him as a king who will do according to his own will and will exalt himself above every god. The Antichrist is literally going to think that he is God. And in fact, at the midpoint of the tribulation, uh, what Daniel talks about, and Jesus actually talks about it as well, da Jesus quotes Daniel by name, by the way, and he talks about the abomination of desolation, where 
the Antichrist will actually declare himself to be God, set himself up in the temple at the midpoint of the tribulation, and de- demand that people worship him. As we've talked about in, in the last, uh, last session and the previous one before that, uh, part of that is going to be the false prophet, which is the second in command during the, during the tribulation. The sort of the, you know, you've got the beast, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, uh, the second in command, like Batman and or like Batman and Robin or something like that. And so this false prophet is going to set up an image of the beast everywhere throughout the world. And this image is going to have supernatural paranormal abilities to be able to speak and and do things. And it's going to represent the beast, the the, uh, Antichrist. And everyone's going to have to bow down and worship the beast. Now, this is nothing new. This is what Satan and his regime have been doing uh, for millennia. Going all the way back to antiquities and the ancient times when, when false religious uh, religions would set up pagan gods. And we could think of you know, the, the, the Roman gods and the Greek gods and many uh, before that. So uh, this idea of images representing uh, the false god, Satan, uh, is nothing new. But it's going to reach uh, new levels and new heights during the tribulation period. And by the way, while we're on the subject of images, remember God, the, the eternal creator of the universe, the one true God, capital G, uh, in whom rests all power and authority, who eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he created mankind, the highest pinnacle of creation, on the sixth day, and he did so according to his image. You and I, mankind, are intended to be God's image bearers on this creation, even though they, people understand and recognize there is a creator by looking at nature and other things, providence and so forth. The book of Psalms tells us this. Paul tells us this in Romans 1. But the, the highest pinnacle, the crown jewel, if you will, of creation is mankind. Only to mankind did God say we are made according to his image. And that image became tarnished the moment we sinned. And make no mistake, you and I were right there 6,000 years ago in the Garden of Eden, sinning, eating that apple too. And therefore we are born in sin, and that image of God is tarnished in man. And the only way for it to be restored is by faith alone in Christ alone, the eternal Son of God, who never sinned, who is God, not just the image of God, who is the exact representation of God, Hebrews 1 tells us, came to earth, lived a perfect, holy, sinless life, died on the cross to pay the sins for mankind, all of mankind, to pay that sin debt. And then he defeated death, hell, and the grave when he rose again, purchasing eternal life with his own blood. And then he offers it freely to all who will receive him by faith. And once you and I or anyone comes to faith in Christ by believing in Jesus Christ alone as the only one who can forgive sin and give eternal life, in that instant we become born again. And once at that moment, from that moment on, the righteousness of Christ is given to us. And once again, we are able to represent God as His image bearers. And that's the reason that sin in the life of a believer is such is so grievous to a holy God. Uh, we have a, a, a video, I think it's on our YouTube channel, I encourage you to look it up and watch it, called The Awfulness of Sin. Sin is a, is a terrible foe, but above all else, the problem with sin is that it, it, it impugns and tarnishes the image of God that we are supposed to be representing. So we don't need to set up little statues all around the world and say, hey, worship that statue and worship that picture and worship that image or that icon. We, as the people of God, In the present age, that's the church, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. 
uh, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we, as we reflect Christ's image by walking in the Spirit and not after the flesh, we are pointing people to God. It's a pretty heavy responsibility and one that often believers forget. But when Satan has his final seven-year period before he is cast into prison and before the Antichrist and the false prophet are cast into the everlasting fire, uh, he, he's going to set up these images true to form as Satanists and Luciferians have been doing for millennia. And he's going to demand that people worship those images. And those who are left behind at the rapture are going to have a choice to make. Do they believe the gospel, the good news that Christ paid your penalty for sin and only through him can you have eternal life? Or do they believe the lie of the Antichrist? But pride, this pride is so powerful. It's the original sin. Uh, as we're going to see in a moment, it's what caused Lucifer to be kicked out of heaven to begin with. And it's what causes man to sin. Is that I don't need to trust God. I don't need to believe his warnings about this apple. I know better than God. I'm smarter than God. I know what I'm doing. Me, me, me. And in that moment, Pride took over, and we fell. Uh, the next verse in Daniel chapter 11, talking about the Antichrist, says, He shall regard neither the God of his fathers, nor the desire for women, nor regard any God, for he shall exalt himself above all of them. Uh, pride. There's a lot packed into this verse, and we're going to come back to it again and again as we continue this series on the spirit of the Antichrist and look at other manifestations of the spirit. But I might just mention in passing here that this future world leader is not going to be Muslim or Buddhist or Hindu or even apostate Christian or uh, Jew, you know Jewish or any or Catholic. He's going to deny the gods of his fathers. He's going to be a pluralist. Only a pluralist would be able to gather together all religions of the world to and convince them to worship him. Uh, he's going to be most likely homosexual. Which is one of the reasons why we see this gender surrender movement that is very recent. I mean, clearly sexual perversion has been around since, you know, the man the time began, really. I think back in the days of Noah and, and so forth. But, and, and even Abraham and, and, and so forth after that. But, but this notion of it, the acceptability of homosexuality, even Pope Francis just uh, today uh, as I'm recording this, uh, announced that, that the Catholic Church should accept and embrace and allow for civil unions of same-sex marriages. So this gender surrender movement where gender no longer matters and, and, it, and, and male is not male and female is not female, that's again a sign, a preparatory sign that things are rapidly slouching toward Gomorrah and rapidly setting the stage for this one world ruler. He's not going to be like any other ruler. I mean, we look in the annals of history and we see men like Hitler and Stalin and so forth, and we think, oh man, they would have been the perfect Antichrist. And in their day, they would have. And had the Lord chosen to come back and catch the church up to meet him in the air at the rapture during that time, perhaps that's who Satan had marked out to be his one world leader. Certainly we know from history that those men were seeking uh, global dominance, and, and they were certainly Luciferian in their worldview. Uh, but even they pale in comparison to the picture the Bible gives of this future one world leader. He's going to deny all of the other religions and demand that everyone worship this new one pluralistic religion. He's going to have no desire for women or any other God. And he's going to exalt himself above them all. Worship me. I'm the God 
Going back to Paul's words in 2 Thessalonians 2, he's going to again oppose and exalt himself above all that is called God, quoting there from Daniel chapter 11. In fact, as I said, here Paul is uh, quoting uh, from uh, sec, from uh, Old Testament teaching here that the Antichrist is going to set himself up in the temple as God. Notice what he says. He's going to say that I am God. Now, Jesus taught the same thing. Daniel taught the same thing. We see this in many places uh, in the Bible. I, I listened to a, a one Bible teacher who uh, who uh, recently who mistaught this, and you know, godly uh, person I'm sure loves the Lord, loves His Word, but did not handle it correctly, and did not, and suggested that because in the New Testament uh, Paul says we are the temple of God in terms of our bodies and the church, that there is not going to be a future temple, and and then when a caller called in and actually uh, questioned this uh, Bible teacher uh, about this, it was a call-in radio show, and pointed out, just as I just did, there are plenty of Old Testament passages that definitely explicitly teach us there's going to be a third temple rebuilt uh, during the tribulation days. <clears throat> this uh, Bible teacher said, no, no, well, the New Testament redefines what the temple is. And so we've got to take that meaning of the temple in Paul's context and go back and impose it on something that was written 500 years earlier in the case of Daniel. But that's, that's terrible hermeneutics, with all due respect. That's a terrible way to interpret Scripture. And we don't do that with any other language because it would make for quite chaos. I mean, suppose you're reading a book from the early 20th century uh, and it talks about uh, the, the gentleman was enjoying the day and feeling quite gay and happy. And you then pick some other writing from 100 years later where the word gay means something entirely different, as it has come to mean. And then you go back and impose that meaning on the original document of something completely unrelated. Well, that's going to change the entire meaning of what the author meant there. But the original audience in Daniel's day and the other Old Testament prophets speak of this uh, quite plainly. And Joel talks about coming and, and ushering in the kingdom and, and Zechariah and, of course, Isaiah. All through the Old Testament, they understood what temple meant. David himself in 2 Samuel 7 understood what temple meant when God promised that he would have a temple forever and that his descendant would reign on the, temp on the throne in that temple. He didn't picture it as being some subjective, symbolic, mystical thing. So the Bible uses the word temple literally as it relates to the future and times. Yes, Paul says, in a manner of speaking, you and I, because if we know the Lord, the Holy Spirit has taken up residence within us, are the temple of God in that sense, and we ought to live accordingly. And yes, in this present age, the body of Christ, the church, Jew and Gentile in one body, is a type of temple. But that in no way negates the plain context of these other passages that teach, as Paul does here in 2 Thessalonians 2, that the Antichrist someday is going to be so proud and so prideful that he takes up residence in the very temple of God. And again, uh, he'll come by it honestly, this Antichrist will, because Satan himself is the most prideful creature ever created. We'll go back to Ezekiel 28 uh, and the story of the original fall. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You know, it's like mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest one? Well, I am. I'm Lucifer, and everybody ought to worship me. And God said, get out. And one-third of the angels in heaven were persuaded by Satan's lies. Remember, Jesus said Satan is a liar from the beginning. And when he speaks, all he can do is speak a lie because he speaks from his own resources, and that's what liars do. And, uh, and so one-third were, were convinced of his, uh, by his pride. 
Isaiah puts it this way, For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will be like the Most High God. This is Lucifer, Satan, in heaven as he plots to overthrow God. So this spirit of pride, it's part and parcel to Satan himself, and it's part and parcel to the future one world leader called the Antichrist. And that spirit of the Antichrist, as we've said, is already at work, and that means the spirit of pride is already at work. Do we see the spirit of pride increasing today? Absolutely, Not, like never before. Are you kidding me? <laughs> um, there was a time... Even in the not-too-distant past, when young people respected the older generation, it was the way we were wired, but not so anymore. Culture has changed. The elders of a community used to be respected because they were experts in all the areas necessary for survival. But now, technology is changing so rapidly that the young people are having to transmit it to the old people, to the older generation. And this has emboldened millions of a younger generation, particularly the millennials, to be more self-centered than ever before. And I don't want to pick on just the millennials, because as we're going to see, uh, this has certainly, uh, this is pride as a universal problem. But it, the manifestations of it is what we're talking about. Remember, these are seven manifestations of the spirit of the Antichrist, and one of these is pride. Several years ago, Time Magazine uh, talked about this from, a, again, a secular perspective, but it was self-evident to any researcher, self-evident to any researcher who takes the time to notice this uh, narcissistic personality disorder is nearly three times as high for people in their 20s as for those 65 or older, according to the National Institutes of Health. 58% more college students scored higher on a narcissism scale in 2009 than they did in 1982. And of course, that, that data is 10 years old. No telling how much worse it is today. It is literally, as one author put it, a narcissistic epidemic. It's an age of entitlement. Not only do I have the right to think and believe what I want, but I have the right to insist that you think and believe what I do and that you respect my thinking. So no matter how uh, abhorrent, unbiblical, immoral, absurd, illogical you, you, my view is, uh, you must respect it and accept it. It's just unbelievable where we have uh, come from. Do you know the story of, of, of narcissists? He was this very uh, handsome fellow in Greek mythology who, not unlike Lucifer, because of his indifference and disdain toward others, was punished by the gods when they made him fall in love with his own image. And he was so enraptured by his own beauty that he was unable to pull himself away from his own reflection in the mirror, and he stuck there and wasted away and died. Narcissus. That's where we get the term narcissistic from. And, uh, you know, this author talks about the narcissist next door. Uh, it's everywhere. Again, he talks about 
With the subtitle there, Understanding the Monster in Your Family, in Your Office, in Your Bed, in the World. <laughs> I mean, there's a narcissist behind every tree. And that's not far from true, for sure. It seems for many people today, their philosophy of life is best diagrammed like this. And I know we've got some people that listen to the podcast, and so sometimes I use uh, diagrams and illustrations and visuals. I always do. Uh, if you are listening to the podcast, I encourage you, if you're able, sometime to go back and watch the videos on the Not By Works YouTube channel. But uh, it seems for many people their philosophy of life is diagrammed like this. Here's the universe represented by this circle, and uh, right here in the center is me. <laughs> Any questions? I'm in the center of the universe. It's me. It's all about me. Even Christian evangelicals have sort of noticed this and talked about it. Here's a very recent article from earlier this month, October 2020, uh, from Focus on the Family, uh, all about unmasking the gospel of Christian narcissism. And perhaps that's one of the most painful aspects to this spirit of the Antichrist, is that this spirit of pride has infiltrated mainstream evangelical Christianity. Um, and again, Paul, the Apostle Paul predicts this, 1 Timothy 4, 2 Timothy 4. We know this is going to happen. But it doesn't make it any easier to accept. Newsweek uh, put it this way, narcissism is on the rise in America. Some researchers say we have a narcissism epidemic and question what's causing it. They did a study with 37,000 college students on narcissistic personality disorder. And they said that the traits from narcissism have risen faster than the traits of obesity since 1980. Now, of course, you'd have to be living in a cave not to know that there have been many studies written and much talked about about obesity. But people fail to realize that narcissism is even a greater epidemic. Um, here's another uh, article, Narcissism on the Rise in America. It's one thing to see that there's a growing number of narcissists in America today, but the real concern is not individual narcissists among us, but when our society embraces anarchism or anar uh, uh, embraces narcissism as the norm. There's a typo in their own headline there. And that really is the problem. You know, I struggle with this. i got to be honest with you. It's it's, to me, it's, it's almost more troubling the way people have accepted this, uh, this new paradigm of pride. Uh, and, and, and even though they may themselves not like it and may not even evidence it, they're just sort of, ah, oh, that's just the younger generation. That's just the way they are, you know, and so forth. It's a me, me, me generation. Are we living through a narcissism epidemic? This uh, article asks. And this one uh, dives into the realm of social media as it relates to narcissism and asks the question, is social media to blame for the rise in narcissism? And it says we're living in an increasingly narcissistic society. This one asks, why is narcissism increasing among young Americans? Uh, it was an interesting article. Uh, you know, the subtitle there gives you a hint at one of the things they looked at. Play deprivation may underlie the increase in narcissism. Yeah, of course it does. When you spend your time in front of a screen playing video games with just you, 
and trying to compete against your own high score so that essentially you're just competing with you rather than playing, you know, pick up basketball out in the playground with your friends or passing the football or playing tag or going down to the creek to go fishing, the kinds of things that uh, you and I did, many of us, when we were younger, when we, when we felt, sought entertainment, riding your bike. I used to spend hours uh, playing with my friends uh, uh, football, and if I couldn't get some of my friends to play, I was discouraged. You know, I would call, you know, I didn't have a lot of friends. And so when I exhausted my list and no one was available that day, it was very discouraging to me. I never thought of just sort of sitting in front of a video game and playing, you know, against myself. Albert Einstein reminded us the only thing more dangerous than ignorance is arrogance. And, you know, I'm no Einstein, but I'm pretty sure Einstein was a smart guy. And uh, there was a time when true leaders in the world, at the home, at the church, at the workplace, throughout society, understood the value of humility and the dangers of pride. Again, it's a, it's a, it's a uh, universal problem, and it's an age-old problem. As we're going to see in a moment when I go back to the Scripture, it is really at the root of sin. But nevertheless, even though we all might struggle with it to some degree, there was a time when it was sort of recognized and able to be spotted right away and recognized as something distasteful and not liked. Um, People that were notably arrogant and braggadocious and prideful and self-centered and narcissistic were the exception, not the rule, once upon a time. Uh, Humility was what was expected among our global leaders and world leaders and business leaders and politicians, but not so anymore. In fact, today, arrogance is celebrated. Look at this article. This is from December 17, 2019. The article is titled, Being Arrogant is Good. <laughs> Four reasons why it is good to be arrogant. You know, unbelievable. When I saw that article and read through it, it's, it's like it's, it's feeding this millennial concept that, and I've worked with millennials. I've been, I've been around them in different settings and business settings, and it's amazing. It's difficult to have a conversation because uh, they know everything, and I know because they told me, right? Um, this, this hardworking, humble ethic of the little engine that could, uh, that taught us that anything is possible, has become an unapologetic, in-your-face statement, Right? They say, I can because I think I can. Now it's become, just because I'm arrogant doesn't mean I'm not right. <laughs> In other words, I don't really care if you think I'm arrogant or not. I'm right, and you should listen to me. Arrogance is not only accepted, it's celebrated. Do we see a spirit of pride and arrogance and hubris swelling up around us today? Absolutely. It's all about me, 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 me. In fact, narcissism has become such an ep- epidemic that scientists have announced a, a new formula for measuring a narcissism. N equals S over H. Narcissism equals the number of selfies per hour. <laughs> N equals S over H, the number of selfies per hour. You know, even the current president of the United States exemplifies to the extreme this new cultural phenomena. And again, I'm not just picking on Trump here. 
Uh, so don't throw things at me or don't cut off the video. I know, I mean, it, it, you know, these days, if, if you're a conservative Christian, as long as the candidate's a Republican, anything goes. And they absolutely cannot uh, critically analyze him because he's a Republican. He must be perfect. Uh, well, I'm here to tell you that is not the case. And if you take the time to study recent political history, you'll find that the occupant of the White House today represents an absolute significant extreme departure uh, from the past. The fact is, Donald J. Trump represents a new kind of president. Uh, just look at these tweets. These are Donald Trump's tweets from his own Twitter account, from his own fingers, if you will. Things like, quote, no one is more conservative than me. No one is stronger on the Second Amendment than me. There's nobody more pro-Israel than I am. Nobody builds better walls than me. Nobody knows more about trade than me. Nobody knows more about tax taxes than me. Maybe in the history of the world. Nobody in the history of the world knows more about taxes than Donald Trump. And I know because he told me in his tweet here even though he hasn't paid taxes for 10 years. Nobody, maybe that's why he knows more about them. I don't know. Nobody knows banking better than I do. Nobody's ever been more successful than me. <laughs> and I love this one. Nobody reads the Bible more than me. I mean, can you picture Ronald Reagan saying things like this or other statesmen from years gone by? I know all the, uh, the Trump fans out there say, ah, he just does it to get a rise out of you. Does he? Does he really? I mean, it's one thing to say something provocative now and then, but when it's a characteristic of your very core essence of who you are, you know, when it's all you ever say, it's certainly something to think about. Plus, people who've known him uh, for years and watched his rise through the pornography and gambling industry where he made his billions uh, have, have testified to this in books and exposés. This is the nature of who this man is. The spirit of pride is definitely on the rise. Now let's go back to the text as we close out this uh, uh, message here on the spirit of the Antichrist. Proverbs very plainly tells us pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. Proverbs 16, 18. It's a warning. And it's a wisdom warning from a wisdom portion of Scripture, wisdom literature that is universal. And it is so easy to apply in every aspect of life and yet so easily neglected. First John 2, the same passages that talk about the Antichrist, remind us that all that is in the world, remember Satan is the prince of the world, the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one, First John 5 tells us, and here John says, all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust, I'm sorry, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father. Is not of the Father. See, you can't get more humble than giving your own son to pay the penalty for sacrifice for everyone else. God created us. He warned us. He loved us. We rebelled blatantly against him, and yet he then took the extraordinary measure of rescuing us from our own predicament, humbly. You can't get more humble than Jesus Christ, the perfect God-man, laying down his life for a brutal, torturous death on a cross for you and me. Pride is the antithesis of God, but is, it is the essence of Satan. And it will be the essence 
of the Antichrist, and it is the essence today of those who wittingly or unwittingly are exhibiting the spirit of the Antichrist. When pride comes, Proverbs 11.2 tells us, then comes shame. And Satan and the Antichrist will be humbled someday. When Christ comes back with a word, he's going to cast the Antichrist and the false prophet both into the lake of fire. And a thousand years later, Satan, who will be imprisoned for a period of time, is going to then be let loose from that prison for one final climactic battle at the end of the millennium. And then he too, with a word, is going to be cast into the lake of fire. The ultimate humbling. Proverbs 29, 23 reminds us, A man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain honor. Make no mistake, pride will get you so far. Many people have attained the highest offices of the land by living a characteristic life of extreme hubris. And because they have money or because they have power, or because they have friends in high places, whatever it may be, they're able to be successful as a corporate CEO or as the president of an institution or academic academia or a top globalist or maybe even world leaders. But make no mistake, their day is coming. And we do not want to follow in those footsteps. And certainly as believers today in these troubling last days, uh, we more than ever before need to certainly stand firm and stand strong. Remember, humility does not mean weakness. Uh, you know, Jesus at times, the most humble man, who, Jesus who was the most humble man uh, who ever lived, at times exhibited great strength when he rebuked the Jewish pharisaical leaders, when he turned over the tables of the money changers. So uh, when he sharply said to Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. So we need to take a stand and we need to uh, exemplify Christ in all that we do, but there has to be a spirit of humility underlying it all. Proverbs 21:24 says, A proud and haughty man, scoffer is his name, he acts with arrogant pride. He acts with arrogant pride. You know, that's what the proud do. They scoff. Don't confront me with the facts. Don't show me the error in my thinking. Don't try to be logical with me. Just They just scoff. They're right. It's their way or no way at all. Do we see a spirit of pride at work today? Absolutely. I believe this is setting the stage for what will have to happen in this future one world system. And it's in that context that the Antichrist is going to rise to power because he's going to have learned how to manipulate his, the, the, the will of the people using his extreme pride, the same way he got, uh, the same way Satan got one third of the angels to follow him out of heaven. And remember, according to Daniel 8 and 2 Thessalonians 2, this Antichrist that we've talked so much about is going to be indwelt by Satan and working according to the power of Satan. So in our next installment, uh, we'll take a look at the next spirit of the Antichrist, the spirit of power. I don't think we need to spend another whole session on the spirit of pride, though we could certainly give example after example. Uh, but I think uh, the point is, is quite clear. But I do want to shift gears next time into the spirit of power. And we are going to spend some time on that as we look at different ways in which power, again exuding from pride, is going to be a key 
part of uh, the Antichrist's regime. And then we're going to look at ways in which that spirit is already, the spirit of force and power is already at play uh, today. So thanks for watching and we'll join you. We look forward to having you join us next time.